book of Micah is an Old Testament book. Let me tell you how to find it. Why don't you find the book of Matthew? That'll be easy to find. And take a left. And it's just about three books behind in the Old Testament. And I want to read chapter 6 of the book of Micah for this sermon today. Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against His people. Even with Israel He will dispute. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery and set before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answering him, answered him. And from Shittim to Gilgal in order that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousands, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? Will God be pleased even if I offer my son because of my sin? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God?
Swindoll tells about the incident that happened to a young employee in a law firm in Dallas, Texas. Every Thanksgiving, it was an annual event for the boss to give everybody a turkey. And um, this young man was single and he didn't cook that much and he wasn't excited about getting the turkeys, but he went through the little ritual, played the little game every year when they gave the turkey away. And on this particular Thanksgiving, uh, this young man's colleagues decided they'd play a practical joke on him. And so they, they, they made a paper mache turkey and weighted it so that it would weigh about 16 to 18 pounds and um, made it just the right shape and size, stuffed it, and wrapped it with butcher paper, just like comes right out of the market. And so they had the big little ritual that day and the boss was giving away the turkeys to all the employees and they made sure he got this one and he went through the little game of thanking the employer and, and rejoicing over his good fortune and left that afternoon with his paper mache turkey under his arm caught the bus and headed out to North Dallas to his apartment complex he was going to leave town as fate has it, a man sat down beside him who was unemployed. He'd been out all day in Dallas looking for work. And he gave this young man a sad story. He'd been out of work for months and was looking for a job and was penniless and Thanksgiving was coming and no turkey. And this guy was thinking to himself, this guy needs my turkey. I don't need this turkey. He needs this turkey worse than I do. But he says he's not, he thought to himself, he's not your ordinary panhandler. If I gave him this turkey, he might be insulted. So he said, how much money do you have? And the guy said, he kind of laughed. He said he had $2.30 to his name. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. He said, I've got this turkey that uh, was given to me uh, at the uh, party today. And he said, I don't have any use for it. He said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll sell you this turkey for $2. And the guy was just overcome with joy. And he gave him his $2 with 30 cents left, and they both departed the truck, the bus stop, both of them happy. One man thinking he had a turkey, you know, that he was going to have after all for his family. The other man thinking, well, I did a good turn. This is my good deed for today. And he felt good about that until Monday when his friends asked him how the paper mache turkey tasted. And he thought of that man wondered what happened to him. Now, I know Micah doesn't know anything about papier-mâché turkeys, but he knows something about papier-mâché faith. I'm sure that he knows nothing about giving away artificial turkeys at a prophetic ministerial alliance meeting on Wednesday afternoon before Thanksgiving. He knew nothing about that. But he, do, he did know something about artificial worship and artificial worshipers and artificial religion. And he didn't know that a man can offer a sacrifice to God from a heart that was still full of sin. And he did understood that a thousand rams offered on God's altar would not compensate for man's inhumanity to man. And he did know that you could not placate God no matter how many times you trekked to the temple. 
And so he gave us what he thought was authentic religion in one sentence. It is perhaps the most famous Old Testament sentence of all. God has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does God require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with God. That's it in a nutshell. And the Hebrew word require there is the word rodash in the Hebrew. It's an active participle and it shows that the action is uninterrupted. It, it neither starts nor stops. It is continuous. It is what God has always required of His people. It's what He will always require. Anything less does not measure up to His requirement. And then the rest of the verse is filled with three standards of conduct, three principles by which a man will order his life if he's a true servant of God. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. When Oliver Cromwell was reigning in England, there was a shortage of silver. And so he got his men together and he sent them out to investigate the local cathedrals to see if there was, they could find any precious metal. And after their investigation, they came back with this report. The only silver we can find is in the saints standing in the corner. To which this radical soldier and statesman replied, Good, we'll melt down the saints and put them into circulation. That's exactly what Micah's talking about. He's talking about melting down the saints and putting, it, putting them into circulation. He's talking about getting authentic religion from the holy place to the marketplace. He's talking about getting authentic faith from the cathedral to the community. And he understands that you cannot placate God no, no matter how often you come to His house. That the real requirements of God are moral and spiritual. And that proper worship is a life of obedience. And that apart from these, the altar ceremonial or an affront to God, an insult, a means by which we try to bargain with God to get Him to accept something less than what He really wants from man. What does God require of you? That's the most important question than anybody could ever raise at the beginning of a year or a week. He requires that you do justice. What does it mean when we say to do justice? What does that mean in our time? Well, you might say it means that you give a person what he deserves. It means that, but much more. It's deeper and, and richer than that. It means whatever a person has a right to demand of you, give him. And it has to do with judgment. It means making right what is wrong. It means being fair and honest. It has to do with relationships. So if it means giving what a man has a right to claim of you, it means that if you're a Christian, he has a right to expect of you Christianity. If you're a Christian, doesn't your neighbor have a right to expect of you that you will share the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. I don't know how many times I've been told by people, you're the first person who's ever come, ever come to share with me how to be saved. If you're a Christian, doesn't that man who do, does business with you, doesn't he have a right to expect that your word is bond? Doesn't he have a right to expect that of you? 
If you're a child of God, doesn't He have a right to expect of you that if there's been any broken relationship, you'll make right what is wrong? Doesn't He have a right to expect that? Yea, demand that of you. James Kennedy tells about Alexander the Great sitting in the courtroom, military courtroom one day when a man was brought, when men were brought in for trial and he was stern and rigid in his, in his judgment of these men as they were brought to Alexander for military trial. One man was brought in kind of cowed. Someone asked, what is your name? And he said, Alexander. And they saw Alexander the Great's face soften and mellow because here was a man who had his name brought to trial. What is the charge brought against this man? Treason, your honor. He fled in the line of duty. He, fors- he forsook, he-, he ran. Alexander the Great's face hardened as he looked at the man and he, he said, is this true? Is the charge correct? Is treason, is that a proper charge? And the man admitted he It was true. And Alexander the Great looked at him and said, Man, either change your ways or change your name. Doesn't he have a right to expect of you, that man who lives next to you, doesn't he have a right to expect of you the example and the life and the embodiment of the principles of Jesus Christ if you bear his name? Andre Guidi The French novelist and poet laureate turned from Christianity to communism and he wrote to explain why. And in his explanation he gave the horrible illustration of the sinking of a troop ship in World War II. Most of the men drowned, but some of them were fortunate enough to get in lifeboats. But as soon as they got in lifeboats, they broke up the seats and used them to hammer the hands and the arms of the clutching ones trying to get in the boat. Said Andre Guidi, to me, Christians are a lot like that, he said. They want to get in the boat first, and they don't want their securities disturbed by the grasping of the drowning. Now, I know there's not anybody here this morning who would do anything like that. That's not the indictment. The indictment is that most of us are not that concerned about anybody else as long as we're safe, as long as things are going well with us. And Gaidi's indictment is the, is the indictment of superficial religion in its most horrendous form. For if my faith is only a means by which I get my soul saved and nothing else matters, it's not authentic faith. It's synthetic faith. Authentic faith never is content with sitting in the boat. Authentic faith wants every drowning one in the boat, even if it means giving up my place there. Authentic faith could never drive over the slums 60 miles an hour on the sixth lane on its way to church and never know the slums were there. Synthetic faith often does. Authentic faith could never sing, Oh, how I love Jesus, and deny Him before His peers. Authentic faith could never sing, I love to tell the story and never do it. Authentic faith is embodied in the life of the Apostle Paul. And he said, I wish myself to be accursed, separated from God. I'll go to hell if it means that my kindred will be saved. They can have my place in the heaven boat. Do justice and love kindness. 
kindness is a rare commodity. I think it was Rollo May who said, the opposite of hate is not love, but, but the opposite of love is not hate, but apathy. And there's a lot of that. And there's a lot of callousness and cruelty also. In March of this past year in Alabama, a man called a media team of newsmen and reporters to say that at a certain time he was a discouraged, depressed, unemployed house painter. And he said, at a certain time, on a certain corner, I'm going to burn myself to death. And a newspaper man and a, and a, a reporter and a, and a camera crew was sent out there to, to, to find out that, to see if that were true. On their way, they knew they'd have to fulfill one of two roles. They could fulfill the media role. That is, they could record that, report that as an impassive spectator. Or they could fulfill the humanitarian role. They could try to prevent him from doing it or at least smother out the flames. For the first 37 seconds, they took the farmer role and they... Tape this man burning himself to death for the 6 o'clock news. Or maybe you read about the boy who killed his girlfriend in California, invited his friends to come and look at the body, and they threw rocks at it. And one other of his friends took a gun and shot the corpse to be sure she was dead. Or maybe you read about the two boys in Virginia last year who watched as the house painter painting on their house fell off the ladder up with an apparent heart attack. But instead of calling, rushing to get help, they went and got their camera and they took turns taking one another's picture with a body. Now I know these are isolated cases, to be sure. But I think, I, I, think I'm, I have my hand, my finger on the pulse of, of, of our time when I say that we, li we are living in an age where kindness is a rare commodity and violence is becoming a way of life. And we become, our favorite pastime has become to be spectating violence on television and the bloodier the better. And Dirty Harry has become our guru. This is an age of violence. And we're not even kind to one another, even in our homes. If you don't believe that, now you just hang on to this a minute. If you don't believe that, you read Dale Evans Rogers' book, Listen to the Children Crying. It's a book about child abuse, which is at epidemic proportions in our time. And she quotes from Dr. Vincent Fontana, who was a medical director of New York City's Fondling Hospital. Listen to this description of brutality. Parents bash, lash, beat, flay, stomp, suffocate, strangle, gut punch, choke with rags or hot pepper, poison, open, slice, rip, steam, fry, boil, dismember. They use fists, belt buckles, straps, hairbrushes, lamp cards, sticks, baseball bats, rulers, shoes, boots, letter iron pipes, bottles, bricks, bicycle chains, knives, scissors, chemicals, lighted cigarettes, boiling water, steaming radiators, and open gas flames. Dr. Fontana calls child abuse the number one killer in America and he says it is a myth that in our nation we love children. Every two minutes, he said, in the United States a child is being attacked by one or both of his parents every two minutes. 
And he said, if the trend continues, that in this, then, that annually we'll see a million and a half children either seriously maimed, crippled, or killed annually. Read it and weep. And understand that these statistics are taken from a nation who bears the name of the man who took children on his lap and said, Suffer little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of God. Love, kindness, sometimes just a word of encouragement will do wonders. William Barclay once wrote, Kindness is the highest of human qualities. It's so easy to laugh at another's ideas, to pour cold water on his enthusiasm, to discourage. Why, he said, the world is full of discouragers. It is our Christian duty to give a word of encouragement, he said. And many a man stands on his feet only because of some word of praise, appreciation, kindness, or joy. Blessed is the man who speaks such a word. And I thought as I prepared this sermon with all that's happening in our community and all the problems that the energy, that the uh, economic crisis has developed. Oh, what a time to express Christianity with a word of encouragement to somebody. What a time to begin, even in our own homes, saying those positive things to one another instead of cutting one another down and being critical of one another. Love, kindness. And it's amazing when you turn over to the 10th chapter of Hebrews and find that passage of Scripture there beginning in verse 19. I was going to read that, but time's getting away. This thing longer than I thought. You know, when I say this sermon in my study, it takes 20 minutes. When I get out of here, it takes 40. No, 30. It's amazing when you find that passage of Scripture in the 10th chapter of Hebrews where he says all these things that we have, we have access to God, we have confidence that we can approach Him, we have a great high priest, and there are some things that we are to do, he says. We are to hold fast our faith, we are to draw near to God. Then he said we are to stimulate one another, find ways of stimulating one another. And that word is encouragement there. And the amazing thing about it is when you study the word, it's the same root For the word Holy Spirit that's found in the 16th chapter of John, in the 17th chapter of John, parakleo. And what he's saying is this, that when you're encouraging one another, when you're loving kindness, when you're showing mercy, you're as close to doing the work of the Holy Spirit as at any other time in the family of God. One last thought, please. Love, kindness, Walk humbly with your God. Humility is kind of a rare commodity also. I heard about the lady who crawled in bed one night just exhausted and she said, Lord, I'm tired. And her husband said, Honey, in the privacy of our own home, you can call me Jack. (laughs) And I, I remember reading somewhere about the guy who was getting ready with his wife to go to this banquet that was given by the community kind of in recognition of some special thing he'd done. It was a black tie affair. He was straightening his tie and he was feeling so good. He said, honey, 
I just wonder how many great men, really great men they are in the world. And she said, one less than you think. <laughs> Wives are good to keep us humble. And John Dillinger used to break into houses, I'm told, with a pistol in his hand. And he'd fire a few shots into the ceiling and he'd say, I'm John Dillinger. My name is John Dillinger. I'm not going to hurt you. I just want you to know my name is Dillinger. Isn't it sad what kind of person a story like that exposes? Don't you like to be abound, around a person who has such a healthy sense of his own self-worth that he doesn't have to put on airs? What does it mean to walk humbly with God? Well, it means, doesn't it, acknowledging that God's judgment is superior to ours. It means acknowledging that God's wisdom and God's way and God's will is superior to ours. That's what walking humbly with God means. Now, Paul said that the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. And Jesus taught us in the Beatitudes that the standards, the values of the kingdom are in diametrical contradiction to the values and the standards of God, uh, the, the values and the standards of the world. And so we have to determine sometime or another, we just have to decide to let God be God to let His will and His way be supreme, to let Him call the shots. That's what it means to walk humbly with God. It means looking to God for everything. You have a problem this morning? Look to God for that problem. There's a crisis in your life, some struggle, some sorrow, some financial burden. Look to God for the answer to that. That's what it means to walk humbly with God. It means coming to a time when we just decide, I'm going to let God be God. I'm going to let His will and way rule my life. Don't you want that? Leonardo da Vinci had a tremendous artistic potential when he was a tender young boy. His mother sensed that and saw it. And so she, she put him under the tutelage of an old and skilled painter. And one day this painter was painting a, a painting he entitled The Baptism of Christ. And he asked Da Vinci, the young boy, the young pu pupil, to paint, a, to paint an angel in the picture. And he left to let him do it. And when the young pupil had painted his angel, he called the, the master, he called his teacher to, to, to examine it. And he came back and he looked at that. And he was, he was astounded by it. He just was enthralled by it. He stood for a long time looking at that angel. It was, the, it was a masterpiece by a child. And he laid down his brush and vowed he would never paint again. For he thought... When the work of the pupil is superior to the work of the teacher, then the lesser of the two should quit. Now I know you and I resist God ruling our life. We resist that. 
We resist the idea that God's wisdom and God's way is better than ours. We want to do our own thing. We want to live our own life. We want to go our own way. Don't you tell me how to live. But isn't it time we decided who is the master and who is the pupil? And that's what Elijah was calling for, screaming for on Carmel. He said, if the Lord be God, follow him. If he's not, if he's Baal, follow him. That's what God requires of you. That you let God be God. And if he's all that matters, then you're free. You're free from people. And you're free from circumstances. And you're free from things. But I'm going to confess to you, I don't know whether I can live up to these requirements or not. For I've been told that I'm to do justice and there have been a lot of times when I've fallen far short of that. And I've been told that I'm to love kindness. But I'm going to confess to you, I'm not that kind of a person. (laughs) And I'm not that humble. I'm getting more so every day. How do you live up to these requirements? Well, the requirements are there in order for us to cry out to God with this. You have a right to demand this. You have a right to require it. But I am helpless to live it. I have tried, but I can't. Therefore, give me the gift of the Holy Spirit and let Him control my life so that He can love in me and through me, so that He can live in me and through me. Oh, Lord, take over my life. Jesus, live in me. Holy Spirit, release Jesus in my life. That's the prayer. I'm not going to come down and say, I'm going to give everything that everybody asks of me. I'm not going to come down and say, I'm going to go around writing letters of appreciation to everybody and making little phone calls to say how much I appreciate you. I'm not going to make those promises. I might not keep them. I'm not going to promise that I can walk humbly with God. I'm a man swell with pride. But I will say this. I want more than life itself, that God be in control of my life and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I am willing to say, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Holy One of God, I'll take my hands off my life and I'll let you take control. Are you willing to say that? To run and walk the law demands, yet gives me neither feet nor hands. But better news the gospel brings It bids me fly and gives me wings. Would you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we have been in your presence today and we've sensed you here in the quietness of this stilled and hushed group. And we have heard your voice in the stammering, inadequate voice of man. Oh, Lord, we've heard you say, Oh, man, you know what is good. This is what I require of you, that you do justice, that you love mercy, kindness, that you walk humbly with me, that you give me your life, that you give me your life. Now give us the courage and the grace to respond. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Now our invitations are these. Would you listen carefully?
I invite you to come this morning if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Oh, let me tell you, it takes a great amount of humility to say, God, I'll turn my hands, I'll take my hands off my life and I'll give you my life. I'll give myself to Jesus Christ. I'll admit that I cannot save myself. I'll admit that in me there is no good. I'll admit that there is no righteousness in me and that I'll go to heaven only if Jesus saves me. That's, that's walking humbly with God. I want you to come this morning if you've never experienced salvation to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. You come. These men will help you to understand the plan God has designed for you. Secondly, I invite you to come if you're a Christian and you need to walk closer with God. You've been away from Him. This is a time of new beginnings. You'd like to say, I want to come back to the Lord. I want to walk with Him. Or maybe you need to come and place your life in the church to say, this is where God is at work and I sense that and I want to be where God is at work. I want to be where God is doing His work. These are the invitations that we offer every time we meet for you to respond. Come and do it today. It's easiest to do it when we first start on the first word. So come while we stand, while we sing.